Hello, hello. Welcome to Words and Voices, a little sanctuary, a quiet nook where you'll hear hard, raw, and humbling conversations with some of the best humans elevating humanity. This is for the round pegs and square holes, the misfits, oddballs, weirdos, tinkerers, and thinkers who dig a simple philosophy that one word, one message, one idea, and one voice can change the world. So, without further ado, here's our chief mischief maker, Neelam Tawar. Welcome to part one of Neelam's conversation with Pastor Carl, where they discuss his repeated brush with understanding mortality and near-death experiences, while still staying true to his purpose. You will love their exchange and are sure to find some peace hearing Pastor Carl's journey. Hoping we'll all come through. Hoping we'll all come through. Open will all come through me and you. Hi, Carl. How are you? No, doing all right. Now that we're getting by our technical difficulties this morning. Yeah. <laughs> for, for everybody who is listening in right now, it's taken us more than three tries to get here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what you're about to hear is pure gold. <laughs> Bearing that, how are you? All things considered, uh, 2020 didn't get off to a very good start for me, but feeling good now. As you know, I had heart problems several years ago. I had a quadruple bypass. And well, there's a whole story that goes with that, too, that <laughs> I actually was passing blood. And when I went to get checked out for that, they said, oh, we need to operate on your bladder. But you need to get checked out by a cardiologist, you know, to make sure you'd be okay for the operation. And in the process of the checkout with the cardiologist, they decided I needed quadruple bypass first. So I had the bypass, recovered from that, then had the bladder surgery. I have a bum heart and a bum bladder, cancer in the bladder. Thought I was all recovered from all of that. Started off this year, January 2nd, with a cardiac arrest. <laughs> my heart stopped. Fortunately, it happened at home about 15 minutes before my wife was supposed to be leaving to go to work. And fortunately also, my wife, no CPR. And so she started CPR. And also fortunately, the rescue squad, emergency services, is only about two miles from our house. So they were here very quickly. She didn't have to do CPR forever. And they had to shock my heart four times to get it working again and got me to the hospital. And they did uh, therapeutic hypothermia. They lower your body temperature for 24 hours trying to prevent brain damage. As far as I can tell, my brain is only as damaged as it was going in. So, <laughs> <laughs> and the hospital calls that code cool. <laughs> Well, you are very cool in general, according to me. Wow. I've never in the time I've known you see you ever lose it. I don't know it's, whether it's because you're in the line of helping people and working for God, I suppose. I don't know what it is. I have never seen you in all the years I've known you. And I've known you at least 10 years. Well, I think it's partly my Vermont Yankee New England background. Taciturn, you don't necessarily show your emotions a lot. I, certainly that was the way I was brought up. The other thing I have always told people in my church is my daily prayers are for two things, patience and equanimity. The equanimity is, okay, you may be boiling on the inside, but you don't have to take that out on anybody on the outside. Speaking of which, how much of that is a struggle? Because you probably meet all kinds of people. You're probably able to see what path they need to follow. Even if it, you obviously can't guide people to do what you want, like, you know, you can't force will on anybody, of course, and force <laughs> you can't even force logic on people at times, as you can imagine. How does that work? Because when you can see somebody going down a path and you know that they should not be doing that, 
how do you stay balanced in that situation and how do you step away from it? Because obviously you want to help people. You're built for that. I suppose all of us, I think you and I both have that in different capacities, of course. How do you process that when you can see someone not doing the thing that's good for them? (laughs) (laughs) If you just shut up and do what I tell you, you'd be fine. You know, but (laughs) obviously you can't do that. That's a struggle. One of the things I was reading about one time was talking about levels of cognitive development. And with people functioning at the highest level, you can reason with them and use logic and give them facts and have them accept them simply because they are facts, uh, recognize them as such and so on. But for lower levels of development, sometimes different techniques work. There is a level of development where if an authority figure tells them that's what to do, then that's what they'll do. Unfortunately, that gets misused a lot by unscrupulous people to manipulate others. So, yeah, there are different techniques for different people, and you have to talk with them long enough to figure out where they are, how they are functioning in life, how they're making decisions in life, and see what you can do to help them, guide them to appropriate decisions. It doesn't always work, of course. That's a hard thing is to learn to accept that you can only do so much. (laughs) Can't save everybody, you know? I've also said this in different conversations with family and friends. And I always say, like, I can't save anybody. I genuinely cannot save anybody. We can point, we can be lighthouses is my philosophy. Let's be the lighthouse, let's guide. But the saving part is not for us to do for, I think that was difficult for me. And it continues Mm -hmm. to be difficult for me, especially, you know, when you're working for yourself and you're making things happen, your creative mind is at play at all times. You know how you can, the resourcefulness takes you in different pockets and makes you sort of almost push your own version of what you think is possible. And then on the flip side, you see sometimes people not able to make like the most simple shift. And that's difficult for me to watch at times. And that doesn't mean that uh, I'm above or below. It's not so much that. It's just that if we could make that little tweak or, hey, if you looked at this just a little differently, do you realize how much impact you could make or do you realize how much you could shift, not just yourself, but at least your immediate family or cause some level of change with the people that are around you? Yeah, in somewhat different context, not a, not a spiritual context, but one of the things that I have done in one sense all my life, if somebody needs help, you go and help them. If you need help, you never ask for anybody to help. Raising my hand five times on that. <laughs> So one of the things that happened was after tropical storms, Irene and Lee, there was a lot of flooding out in Schoharie County where I used to live. And so I went out to help. Altogether, I spent six years going out there to help. In the process, I also, through the Methodist Church, had training for what we called um, early response teams. They're disaster response teams. And our teams go in as soon as the situation is stabilized enough to be safe for us to go in. So after a flood, for instance, as soon as the floodwaters go down, we go in. And so I've done a lot of that, not only in Schoharie Valley, I've, I've gone on these trips other places too. In fact, I got so into it, I got trained to be a trainer and, and show other people how to do this. But, but you can go into a, a house that's been flooded, the carpets are soggy, the couch is ruined, it's got mud in it, and it's wet and everything else. And you can say to the people, you know, we need to clean the house out. And we need to make decisions about what can be saved and what can't be saved. And while I've got a team here to help carry that soggy couch out, now's the time to do it and so on. And people will just kind of lock up and say, you can't take my couch. Well, 
I'm not going to take it. Mold is going to take it. Okay, <laughs> uh, it's just going to rot, I, it, and it's going to help everything else around it rot and so on. But they can't make that decision at that time. It's an emotional decision. It's a psychological block they have to get by, and so on. You just can't do it at that time. And so you say to them, "Okay, here's the things that I can tell you should be done. Here's the things I can tell you have to be done. Okay, or else." The authorities will come along and tell you, you can't live in this house. And if you can't make the decisions today, I'll come back tomorrow. I'll come back next week. Things will be worse next week, but I'll come back next week and keep coming back and try to get you to make the decision. I'll also work with family members. We had uh, one older fellow whose business had gotten completely wiped out and he could not make himself do anything to recover that building. But I could talk to his two sons. And one of his sons managed to convince his father that, okay, you don't have to go there. If it's too traumatic for you, you don't have to go there. But let me go there with the team, and we can now get things done. So you can do end runs around people sometimes. Lots of techniques, but also lots of understanding that, you know, I can tell you what you should do. I can't make you do it. Right. So how does faith play into that? Because I imagine as a minister and as someone who wants to see people shift and change and and make better choices without obviously forcing personal will on them, how does faith come into play, not just, you know, when you have to deal with these types of situations, but also when you go through your own personal kind of coming to terms with mortality, right? Because I always sort of look at that as a baseline and I wish more people would pay attention to the fact that, hey, listen, pretty much the only guarantee you and I have right now beyond the moment of birth is there is a bit of a situation, which is our expiry date. And <laughs> do most people forget that that's the compass they should be using? And I'm not talking about that as something to be feared. I'm talking about it more from a perspective of how can you contextualize your in-between, which is from the birth to the last moment? What do you do in that middle space? That's the part that matters, right? So... Do you think that there's something there? Well, you've asked at least three questions in there. So let me see if I can break this down a bit. As far as getting people to live with the idea that they're going to die at some point. You know, there are a lot of people who simply refuse to think that way, to face that at all. You know, they won't make out a will. You know, you can't talk to them about the fact that, you know, if you're 80 years old, you might be getting near the end. You might want to prepare for that in a number of ways, prepare financially, uh, you know, and physically and spiritually and in terms of your long-term care and all of that. It, you know, so I, yes, I, you do work with people trying to getting them to look at that. As far as me personally, I'm not afraid of dying. I don't want to die badly. I mean, there's the old joke about, you know, I'd want to die like my grandfather peacefully in my sleep, not like the people who are riding with him in the car. <laughs> <laughs> It would be nice if see, I sat down in my chair and my heart stopped and I was gone. But, but other than that, I came close to that too. But I don't have a fear of that. I mean, what, what happens will happen. I know it's going to happen. I just hope it happens well and at a time when it's not going to cause others a whole lot of problems. But I hope they'll miss me enough that it'll cause them grief, but not problems. <laughs> as far as how do we get people to use the time between birth and death in a good way, that's my sermons every week. <laughs> yeah. That's holding up examples to them. That's examples from scripture, but examples from other people and so on. You know, you, you can hold up all kinds of examples, uh, common ones, you know, like Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, you know, and so on. And again, I, you know, do you convince anybody by talking at them? Correct. And it's curious for me, I will give a sermon 
and say, eh, that was an okay sermon. You know, I, I didn't think it was anything great. And have people come up to me afterwards and go, wow, you really touched me today. Something you said got through to me. And I go, good. I have no idea what it was. Okay. <laughs> but, but I'm glad it worked for you. Okay. And there's other times when you think, boy, you know, I nailed that sermon today and nobody says anything. It's like, all right, that one kind of fell flat. It worked for me. It apparently didn't work for them. So you never know. And in teaching, I found that too. People, students would come back to me years later and say, you know, you really helped me. You did such and such. And I go, good. I'm glad. And when you can see those moments happening, uh, either in my teaching or preaching, that's the reward. That's what keeps you going and keeps you trying. So what led you to be a pastor and to work this closely with scripture? And how did that journey kind of transpire? Did you always know? I mean, it sounds to me that you've always wanted to help people. You've always felt that that was something important to you. We can go back to my teenage years. I was always involved in the church. As soon as I was old enough that they would let me usher and hand out bulletins before, to people before church and so on. I, you know, I was always doing that kind of thing. Let me ring the bell. I can hop on that rope and jump up and down and so on. Yeah. And that probably mostly comes from my mother. My mother was a Sunday school teacher and then superintendent of the Sunday school and, and always involved in the women's group and so on. Who also thought I was from Finland. So let's not forget that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so I was always involved in that kind of thing in the youth group at church and so on. But when I was in high school, I ended up being the valedictorian of the class. And I found in study halls, people would be working on homework and would come over to me and say, what did you get for the answer to number 12 mm -hmm. on the homework? And I realized very quickly I was being used if I simply gave them the answer. And so instead of giving them the answer, I would try to explain to them how I did it. Wow. I was teaching. I wasn't really thinking about the fact that I was teaching, but I was. And by the end of my senior year, the study halls, I was spending all my time helping others. And I put that together with, I like science. And so in ninth grade, when I took uh, earth science, I said, boy, that's really neat. I think I want to be a scientist. Tenth grade took biology and said, yeah, maybe a geneticist. I was narrowing it down to what kind of scientist, right? In 11th grade, when I took chemistry, I said, I think I want to be a Methodist minister. Well, that's a shift. Well, that's because I was interested in the Methodist minister's daughter at the time. Oh, good, good on you. <laughs> okay. But when I took physics in 12th grade, I said, no, this is it. I like physics and I like helping others get through their math and their science classes and so on. And I said, I think the thing for me is to become a science teacher. And so that's what I started off to college for. So I got my bachelor's and first master's in teaching with a physics major. And that got me going on my career in education, 14 years teaching high school and then over 20 years teaching at the college level. But all along the way, I was involved in the church, more and more heavily involved in the church committees, and then started getting involved at the conference level in the Methodist church. And I say, you know, that I think all the way back in high school, maybe God was whispering in my ear saying, you know, I, I got something I want you to do. And I'm a little hard of hearing. I'm wearing hearing aids now. I didn't hear him. And through the years, I think God spoke to me maybe a little louder and a little louder. And about the time I was about to turn 55 and things were not going as well for me in my career at the college, I had a dream one night when I woke up with this booming male voice, okay, stereotypical, but anyway, saying to me, read the end of Matthew or Luke. 
So I did. I read the end of Matthew. That's the great commissioning where uh, Jesus commissions the disciples to go forth and baptize in my name and teach. I said, hmm, I think God got through whispering and he came along and slapped me up alongside the head and said, look, I've been talking to you. (laughs) And at that point, I started making plans to uh, retire from teaching and go into ministry. That's how I got there. And you state that's probably also quite important because you could have easily probably found another way to walk away from that too and then maybe have another whisper of your week. In some ways, ministry was kind of an extension of teaching. I mean, you know, in ministry, you know, you kind of take in the material you've been given, textbook when you're teaching, Bible when you're preaching, okay? <laughs> and you're trying to communicate the lessons in that to, you know, your audience. And preparing a sermon is not that much different than preparing a lecture. In a lecture, you'd probably use a little more audiovisual, especially yeah. in sciences. You would uh, do demonstrations and so on. A little harder to do that in the pulpit, but you try. Okay. Um, if nothing else, you use yourself as the example. So in many ways, it wasn't a big change. If you're doing classroom management, then uh, you know, you're know you managing your whole worship experience, not just the sermon. And in my case, when I was teaching high school, I was doing some coaching. You kind of do coaching when you're, when you're a minister too. At the college level, I had started moving into administrative positions. And so you were managing staff and whatnot. So if you're running a church, you're managing staff and you're working with people on budgets and so on. So the administrative side of it was, that wasn't that much different. It all worked to kind of seamlessly to shift over from teaching to being a minister. As far as sticking with it, yes, I was enjoying what I was doing. I like helping people. Anyway, (laughs) whether you succeed or not is another question, but, you know, we've talked about that. How does science fit into this? Because, you know, there's so much chatter in the world these days that these two concepts of faith and science cannot sit, you know, in one bucket. And I've always felt that they're they're probably different sides of the same coin, possibly. I'm I'm not sure if that's going to be the best analogy, but for, for where you are, most people probably want you to have a very distinct viewpoint, which is probably erring on only one side of the coin, if you will, like, hey, science does not exist. I'm not trying to say that that's what you've encountered, but does that happen too with the work you do? And how do you, how do you apply the practicality of being human into this space of faith and belief? Oh, I've been asked that a whole bunch of times. I also would comment that it's probably from the 19, well, maybe the 40s, but a little more in more recent decades, too, that people start to say that science and faith are antithetical. And in relatively recent times, in in the last 10, 15 years, now there are more and more books being put out, some of them by scientists, saying that that's not at all true, that they are complementary rather than antithetical. And at the moment, I'm terrible about remembering names of books or authors, but uh, and I've got a couple of them around here somewhere, but I don't see that they are antithetical. Starting off in learning physics, I thought the world was black and white. Things either are this or they are that, and there is nothing in between. And the more I learned, especially when you get into quantum theory and so on, okay, there's nothing that's black or white, okay? There are all kinds of shades of gray, and there's lots of room in what science knows and doesn't know. And scientists, if they're honest with themselves, admit that there is a lot that we don't know about how the world works yet. So I think there's a space where God exists. 
in the stuff that we don't know, that we can't explain. You know, the Bible may say, let there be light. I used to have a poster on my wall in my office that said, and God said, let there be light. And what followed was Maxwell's four equations for how electricity and magnetism and, <laughs> and therefore light work. So it said, God said, let there be light. And four equations and at the bottom it said, and there was light. Now, scientists will say, okay, these are the rules of the universe. And I ask, why? Why does an electron have the mass that it does? Why does a proton have the mass that it does? Why does that turn out to be apparently the right mass in a relatively small range for the world to work? Who made that decision? So I think there's plenty of room for God in science. Obviously, there are people who say, you know, there's no God in that. It's simply that we haven't discovered it yet. Well, okay, then that's your worldview, and my worldview is a little different, and I, I don't think that they need to be offensive to one another. Okay? <laughs> right. There's room in there. But, so I think there's room for God in science, and I think there's room for science in God, too. When I go back to there are fundamentals, fundamental laws of the universe, fundamental properties to the universe, fundamental constants in the universe, and all of them are what make the universe, the world, us, what we are, make us possible. And I think God is as good an explanation for why those things are the way they are as anything. So I don't know. I haven't had a lot of debates with other scientists. We can arrange for that if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to do a lot of preparation, a lot of study first, so I could have facts to throw out there. But certainly I get guys that I play golf with will say, how could you be a scientist and also be a minister? Yeah. I said, I don't know. How can I be a golfer and also be a minister? There's a lot of science involved in golf. You know, if I believe that if I swing the club the right way, the ball's going to do the right thing and so on, does that prevent me from believing in God? No. So I get those questions more often from non-scientists. Hmm. And I always take those as these are people who want to believe. They aren't quite sure how. They still have questions. They still have doubts. And that's great. One of the transforming experiences for me, I used to get up and get ready for school in the morning. My mother gave up on making breakfast for any of us because three kids and we'd all want something different. So he said, okay, I'll teach you how to cook. You take care of yourself. Okay. So we would get up in the morning, make our own breakfast and so on. And, and I would get up and have toast and I'd be done sitting on, the, on my mother's bed, talking to her in the morning before it was time to go to school. And one of the questions or one of the things she was talking about one day, and I've forgotten how we got onto this, was the Wesley Quadrilateral, Wesley being the, the founder of the United Methodist Church. So the Wesley Quadrilateral says that how we go about knowing things, knowing truth, investigating truth, is you look at scripture and you work from that. You look at tradition, which is all the people that have come before you who have thought about things, Okay. And so you're looking at Greek philosophers and you're looking at theologians and so on. You look at experience. Okay? What does your own experience tell you must be true? And you apply reason. And it was that one that hooked me. Okay. I was just going to say, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I'm allowed to think. I'm allowed to question. And not only allowed, I'm expected to question. Okay. To look at what others have seen done before me, to look at the scripture and interpret it, okay? Not just hear it, 
I've had a lot of discussions with my wife over the years. The difference in that kind of uh, an approach, that kind of philosophy in the Methodist church compared to my wife is Catholic. And in the Catholic church, the priest tells you. And for many, many years, the only exposure to scripture that Catholics had was what the priest read to them on Sunday or during mass, because they might be going on Saturday, whatever. Catholics were not encouraged to read scripture and interpret for themselves. The Catholic church is a much more top-down church. There is authority at the top. They tell you this is the appropriate interpretation and so on. Methodist church is much more bottom-up, and it comes from that Wesley idea that we're not only allowed the question, we're expected to question. And so I kid about, you know, knowing that now, I don't see how I could have been anything but Methodist. Right. (laughs) I was actually going to say the same thing, because I think the way you interpret anything because of the way your mind works, obviously, because you are drawn to the science of things. But that idea of reasoning, the idea of questioning, the idea of not just accepting without due diligence, if you will. I think Mm -hmm. that's actually exciting for someone like you, because if you were just being told to do something, chances are, and I don't mean just like you per se, but I think there's a lot of us who are a bit like this, where we're like, hey, I don't know why this makes sense. Show me proof. Show me, you know, just similar to the golfers you're mentioning. They want to believe, but uh, but someone's got to show them like this magic or this sort of miraculous way of looking at a situation possibly. That's why I, I always, people would say, you know, well, did you ever serve in the army or armed services? And the answer is no, I never did. And there were reasons for that. But one of the reasons would have been if I was given an order, my first thing would have been not to obey it, but would have been to say, why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why am I doing this? (laughs) And that wouldn't work well in the service. Okay. Probably Um, not. I would be questioning authority all the time. And I understand why they say, you know, no, you have to obey the order immediately because to hesitate, he who hesitates is lost kind of thing. You know, if you hesitate, it's too late. But there are some things that you simply have to do immediately. I mean, like if you put your hand on a hot stove, you, you take your hand off immediately. You don't sit there and go, gee, I wonder why that's hot. <laughs> and why are my fingertips, uh, you know, blistering? And you know, Serving in the service would not have been a good thing for me at all, at all, at all. <laughs> you found another way to serve. And mm-hmm. I think it works for who you are. And, and I think it's also about being able to do the thing that, you know, we talk a lot about like, hey, push through things, fight, like be strong and whatnot. But there's also there's a path of least resistance, not in terms of like laying your sword down, but a path of least resistance in that you know what your natural tendencies are. Why not go in that direction instead? Yes. What's going through my head is physician, heal thyself. I think in order to be good at helping others, you first have to understand yourself and know what your limitations are. There are certain approaches that work better for me to try with people and approaches that just are not me. Again, I'm referring to my wife. I, you know, I can go into a situation where somebody is facing some trauma, they're in some difficulty and so on. I can sympathize with them. I can pray with them and so on. My wife will go into that situation and in five minutes, she'll have them laughing. Of course she will. Okay? I know her. And it's not a skill that I have. Okay. She'll dispel the gloom in some way, if only for a little while. I mean, that doesn't solve any problems, but they feel better. And I'm just in there wallowing along with them. Okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe empathizing would be a better phrase. <laughs> Don't yeah, well, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay. <laughs> just to soften it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a very good vocabulary and I try not to use it in many cases. 
when I'm preaching, I try to just talk to people, okay? Mm. Not preach at them, but just talk to them. I think it's more effective. I don't know. Yeah, and empathy. I think it boils down to that quite a bit, right? Yeah. And yeah. how was that part of that process, you know, I think a lot of us who have taken a divergent route than most people have, or, you know, I've for the longest time always felt like I was weird. It's still, it's still there. <laughs> well, you so are a bit, but... <laughs> oh, thanks so much for the compliment. <laughs> but honestly, if you said this to me maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I'd be, what? No, I want to be normal. I, that, that's not to say that the opposite of weird is normal, but it would sting a little because I think what I struggled with quite a bit was really showing who I was and be who I am. And what I mean by that is just not have versions of me playing, not performing almost in different ways, right? And especially because you're, I felt so different. I had friends who were very comfortable with their lives. I would go into work and not feel the same way as they did. I would process every behavior very differently and even just question the bigger things like, is this how people really think? Is this how the world really is? And why wasn't I raised to be aware of such things? Not to say anything that not not about the parents as much, but I was raised in a different part of the world in a time where things were more simpler or probably we were sheltered. But that path of self-discovery, solitude and asking those questions is not for everybody. And I think you have to have courage to do that too and have the right type of support system around you. You you are married to someone who understands that. How was that part of it for you? Because you're obviously a questioning mind and you probably are different than most of your peers. And while maybe a lot of your friends were probably looking at buying big houses, settling with like a hefty retirement or something of that sort, which was very aspirational and not to make it sound like it's a bad thing, but materialistic, you were on another path altogether. Was it painful? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not at all. Again, from a young age, it was, we didn't have a lot (laughs) growing up. You know, my father had a good job, but my father also was a drinker. So not all of his income went toward uh, household expenses, shall we say. Okay. Yeah. So we didn't have a lot. I kid about I learned at a young age that actually uh, fried macaroni with ketchup on it is not a bad meal, pretty cheap one. So from a young age, I was working. I started with a paper route before it was legal to have a paper route, actually. (laughs) It was in somebody else's name, but I was doing it. I started with a paper route when I was eight years old. Who did you go to confess to that? (laughs) That little thing. (laughs) (laughs) And between my brother and I, we had that paper route for 13 years. I also shoveled sidewalks for the town. I mowed lawns for people. I, you know, I was always working, doing something to make some more money. I don't think it was a conscious thing that I was going to want to go to college and, and like, expect my, my parents to pay for it. But I ended up doing that. I, I basically paid for all of college myself. So, no, I was always working. But the other thing is, even though we didn't have much, there were always people who had less. Mm, and my mother would reach out to them. Uh, There was a family that lived across the street from us, French-Canadian, seven kids, and they didn't have a lot. They had really nice clothes and and good shoes and so on for all of them to troop down the street to go to church on Sunday. Other than that, they had patched jeans and sneakers with holes in them and so on. And so even though we didn't have much, we had enough to share, and we shared with others. One of my best friends in life, he still contacts me now and then and, and talks about how 
my family saved him because it gave him a place to go when things got too bad at home. And he says, to this day, I keep peanut butter and jelly on my dining room table because I knew that when I came to your house, if there was nothing else, I would always have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat. I mean, our house was like that. Anybody could walk in and we'd feed them, give them a place to sleep, give them whatever we could. And so I was brought up that way. And so I, as I said before, if somebody needed help, I'd be there to help. I wouldn't ask for help for myself ever, but I would always be there to help others. And that's part of teaching. That's part of being a minister. That's part of the disaster response work. That's just me. That's the way I was brought up and the way I am. And it also is the way Christians are supposed to be, at least my brand of Christianity. There's a thing called the prayer of Jabez, and people will look at the prayer of Jabez, and basically Jabez is praying to God for God to give him riches and to give him long life and make everything wonderful in his life. And people will look to God for that, and I'm going, that's not what God's around for. That's not what you're here for. You're here to help others. Not to ask God to hand it to you. You're here to help others lift up the downtrodden, okay? And tell those who are hoarding for themselves that they need to share. That's kind of the way I teach and preach. And that's why the pain, what I refer to as the painful process of being yourself, was probably a softer blow for you just because of this type of thinking that you just carried naturally. So it didn't even matter to you what was happening around you, really. You were just forging your own path to some extent. Yeah. If somebody else wants to expend all of their time and effort and energy grasping after money, okay, that's not for me. I have always managed to have enough for me to feel comfortable. Never felt rich, but enough to feel comfortable. I had what I needed. Hmm. I didn't need more. And so because I had enough and many times more than enough, then our charitable giving is a significant portion of our resources. You know, you give of your time, you give of your effort, and you give of, of what you have for others. So, yeah, in all kinds of ways. I, there's, I mean, giving to the church, but also giving to charities and so on, giving of our time and so on, working for charities. And it's not just me, it's Joanne, too. It's the way we are. As simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking what it would be like to be married to somebody who their ambition was to get as much as we could and have a big bank account and so on. And I don't think we'd stay married. (laughs) (laughs) That would just not be a good fit at all, you know? And also Joanne is like the best hugger in the world. So I don't know (laughs) about like, you know, (laughs) that part either. She definitely is a people person. She is. It's interesting because when I think of her too, that it's interesting. I feel like she's got some of my tendencies too, where she does like her own alone time as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, she's a very kind soul. And I'm glad that both of you actually met. And I spent my first Thanksgiving and Christmas with you all <laughs> when I first moved to the States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll never forget that. But again, that's the way I was brought up that, you know, we used to kid about when I was little, our back porch on our house was the playground for the neighborhood. Mm. And when it came supper time, my mother would stick her head out of the kitchen onto the back porch and say, how many am I feeding tonight? That's the way we are. You know, that in your case, you're not from this country. Who do you know here? How are you going to spend this holiday? Oh, come on. You know, <laughs> there's always room at our table. Come on. Right. And I know we've talked about this before, but I was also being raised in Africa. I think for me, Christmas is as probably more important and vital than other 
celebrations. So it does ring ring close to home and wanting to be around family. And other than the fact that I also broke your shower that one time that I was back into your house. <laughs> it was a very Mr. B moment uh, in my life. I can't believe I did that. So I'm guessing that I'm not invited to the new place when I come back. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. oh, you are definitely invited anytime you want to come. You just said better show. Hey, you notice I didn't get upset about that. You know? No, no, I, no one did. We were just laughing. Hey, All of us were laughing. Head, uh, no big deal, you know. <laughs> oh, my God, we were just laughing. And I think, yeah. isn't that what like being with family to some extent is about? Just yeah. having your internal jokes. And now I know for a fact that you probably showerproofed your house for Neelam. <laughs> <laughs> No, I figured if it broke, it probably was going to break anyway, and it was time to replace it anyway. So That's what I think. Thank you for listening. This was part one of Neelam's conversation with Pastor Carl Shepard. You can hear the rest of their conversation on the very next episode of Words and Voices, where they cover more about faith, choices, and how to live a more meaningful life. Thanks so much for stopping by Words and Voices with Neelam Tawar. We can't wait to see you again with another voice and more words from game changers, movers and shakers, and quiet visionaries creating a dent in the world. Oh, and please don't forget to comment and share what resonated with you here or on info at neelamtawar.com. Till we meet next, and as Neelam says, be good to you.